0: In 2007, three Turkish Christians were murdered in the street of Smyrna, which is a city we've read about in Revelation. Stabbed to death because of their public witness for Christ and left lying there to rot. Members of a nearby church came out with spades to dig graves for these martyred brothers, and thousands of Christians from across Turkey attended a funeral for these martyrs, to honor them, despite the watching eyes of Turkish police. And one Turkish pastor said this, Don't pray against persecution, pray for perseverance. The church is better having lost our brothers. The fruit in our lives, the renewed faith, the burning desire to spread the gospel, All these are not to be regretted. Pray that we stand strong against external opposition and especially pray that we stand strong against internal struggles with sin, our true debilitating weakness. This we know. Christ Jesus was there when our brothers were giving their lives for him. This is often the story of Christians in this age, hated by the world as their Lord promised them would be the case, treated with hostility and cruelty, often even brutally killed, simply because of their identification with Jesus Christ. The picture of reality painted in the book of Revelation is not rose-colored. It does not pretend that followers of Jesus in this world should expect to live our best lives now. It tells us the truth. Christianity throughout the age will usually be Unpopular, out of favor with the political and social powers of the day and targeted for elimination by those in authority who regard it as a threat or a distraction. But Revelation is clear about another reality as well. Christians will ultimately be victorious. And they will be victorious through their suffering because of their persecution. That's what Revelation chapter 11 says. Is all about. So if you have a copy of the Bible, I invite you to turn to Revelation 11. That's where we'll spend our time this morning. A little bit of context review, just so we understand where this falls. Uh, We have seen the the trumpets of judgment sounding. We saw seven angels that were given trumpets, and one by one they began to sound these trumpets. And these trumpets broadly represent the partial temporal judgments of God on the unbelieving world in this age. So I don't believe that all these trumpets are future events. I think we're seeing them happen again and again throughout this age between the resurrection and the return of Jesus. In chapter 8, we saw trumpets 1 through 4, which had in common that they uh, afflicted man's physical environment, the earth, the sky, the sea, and so we saw physical suffering it would be an element of God's judgments upon unbelieving mankind. In chapter 9, we were introduced to three woes. The final three trumpets are, are additionally woes. And there words, kind of an intensified prophetic uh, curse. And those, the first two trumpets, 5 and 6 in chapter 9, represented spiritual oppression. Uh, including... Uh, demonic attack and the killing of a large number of people by these sort of uh, evil demonic forces. And then, just like when we were going through the seals in chapter 6, where there was a, a pause, there was an interlude between the 6th and 7th seal being open, here there is a literary interlude once again, where we saw the first six trumpets in rapid succession and then the vision, instead of taking us through the 7th trumpet, It takes us to a different scene depicting what the church on earth is doing during this age. So the first six trumpets were the judgments that God is pouring out through this age on unbelievers. Then the interlude in chapter 10 and 11 is about the church on the earth. What what are the people of God doing and how are they faring during this period of, of partial and temporal judgment? And last week in chapter 10, we saw that the church is God's prophet to the nations. The church acts as God's prophet to the nations. Indeed, that ministry continues throughout the chapter that we'll look at today. But the main message of chapter 11 is this. The church is temporarily persecuted, but ultimately victorious. The church is temporarily persecuted, but ultimately victorious. That's the big idea of chapter 11. I'm going to read for you verses 1 through 14. And we'll talk about what goes on there, and then we'll finish with the last few verses, uh, verse 15 and following after that. So let me read for you the first 14 verses of Revelation 11. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents, because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. And they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. The Church of Jesus Christ is temporarily persecuted but ultimately victorious. I think that is what is going on in this chapter. I'm going to give you a little outline because there's a lot here, and so we're going to try to move quickly through it, but I want to tell you where we're going so that you have an idea of where where we are as we're tracking together. We're going to see the church's secure position, the church's unpopular ministry, the church's apparent defeat. The church's public vindication. And then finally, the church's final victory. All right? You don't have to have all that written down right now, but just know that's the, the sequence that will follow. The first thing we see is the church's secure position. And this is what verses 1 and 2 are about. John is told, uh, he's given a measuring rod, like a staff, and told to measure The court, excuse me, the temple. Rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. So three images, the temple, the altar, probably the altar of incense, which would have been in the the Holy of Holies, and uh, the people who worship there at the temple. I believe that all three of those images refer to the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ on earth. Uh, William Henderson points out that just as in chapter 7, we saw uh, this, this uh, an image of the, the people of Israel, right? So we saw the allotment of tribes in chapter 7. God was sealing the people on their foreheads, and it listed out the tribes, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we saw in that chapter, that image of Old Testament Israel actually represented the full number of of the redeemed people of God, Jew and Gentile who are uh, who have come to faith in Jesus. And so just as in chapter 7 there was this Old Testament image of the people of Israel representing uh, the new covenant people of God. So here the true church on earth is symbolized by Israel's earthly sanctuary. Okay, so I don't think he's literally talking about the the temple building in Jerusalem, although the scene in the vision is clearly the city of Jerusalem and we see that as uh, as the story unfolds but the physical sanctuary symbolizes the spiritual sanctuary namely the people of god so that's who we're, uh, I think is in view here and the measuring the measuring of the temple and the altar and the people who worship there is a symbol of protection it's a marking off it's setting a boundary around the people of god on earth in other words the church of Jesus Christ is protected from the wrath of God that is to be poured out, both in temporal judgments, as we've seen in trumpets one through six, and the final judgment that's to come in the seventh trumpet, which we'll see in just a few minutes. So the measuring of the temple and the altar and the people who worship there is a symbolic representation of God's protection of his people. They will not be judged they will not receive his wrath. They will be preserved uh, for, for salvation and not for wrath to come. And he says specifically, do not measure the courtyard, right? So the temple uh, would have had, you know, an inner, like a building that had the holy place and then the holy holies inside that. And then there was this outer area, this outer courtyard. And he says, do not measure the courtyard. It is given over to the nation." And indeed it says that they would be trampled by the nations for 42 months. So where the people of God are gathered for worship, there's security and protection. And the area that's not measured, even the outer parts of the, the temple itself, and the holy city is trampled by the nations, namely unbelievers. So there's, I think that's a picture of the pressure and the persecution that will come upon the church, even perhaps from those who claim to be doing the work of God. So the temple courtyard itself would be those who seem sort of close to God and His purposes. And so maybe these are people who think they are serving God or even claim the name of Christ, and yet they are themselves pressuring and persecuting the people of God. So if unbelievers will test and persecute God's people. They're protected from. Wrath and preserve for final salvation, but the church on earth must endure harm and hatred throughout the time of our exile here. I think that's the reality that this is pointing us toward. And this period of persecution, we're told, is trampling of the courtyard lasts for 42 months, which is three and a half years, uh, which I think represents the whole age between the resurrection of Christ and the second coming of Christ, the age in which we live. I don't think these three and a half months are, or three and a half years, are a future period. I think they're happening right now, and I don't think it's a literal amount of time either. It just represents this, this period of time before Christ comes and brings his final judgment. So the first reality to see is that the church is secure in Christ, even though the church is pressured and persecuted. Throughout this age, don't interpret pressure and pain that comes into your life because of your faith as evidence that God has forgotten you or abandoned you. In fact, rather regard it as evidence that you belong to Him. You are experiencing what He prepared you for in His work. Tom Schreiner says, Life in this world is not easy, but is marked by suffering and distress and opposition. And yet, God is with us, guarding, guiding, nourishing, and strengthening until the end. I think that's what's meant by the measuring off of the temple and the altar and the people who worship there. The church is secure in their position in Christ. In verses 3 through 6, we see the church's unpopular ministry. The church's unpopular ministry. Ministry. So here I will go ahead and state plainly what I think uh, will be unfolding throughout the rest of this chapter. I believe that the two witnesses of Revelation 11 represent the church. It is the church of Jesus Christ on the earth, symbolically represented by these two witnesses. Again, with the, the images of Revelation, there's a lot of divergent understandings and interpretations of what things represent. So you can find easily other Bible-loving, orthodox Christian believers who think these two witnesses are something else, perhaps even literal future physical manifestations of Elijah and Enoch or things like that. You'll find views like that, and they fall within the bounds of orthodox faithful Christianity, okay? But I'm just trying to show you that what I believe is going on with these two witnesses is not a literal, it's it's not a future event where these two dudes are gonna show up and start doing crazy stuff, Uh, And it's not even just two dudes. I think these two prophets represent the people of God on earth, the church of Jesus Christ during this age. Let me give you a few reasons that I think that. Deuteronomy 17.6 establishes the law that a case against someone in court must be established by at least two witnesses. Jesus himself borrows that law in Matthew 18 when he's speaking of what we call church discipline where he says that, uh, that the, the uh, charge must be established by two or three witnesses. And then when he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them, he's speaking of that same law from Deuteronomy, where, where a charge against somebody would be established by two or three who would confirm and corroborate the testimony. And so that there are two witnesses in Revelation 7 echoes that law validating a claim. All right. So if the church is to be the witness to Jesus Christ in the world, they're represented by two witnesses, meaning they meet the legal requirement for a charge to be established. Secondly, they're said to be lampstands. You see that? These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. In Revelation chapter one, when John had the the, the vision of the risen Christ who commissioned him to write down what he would see in this vision, we saw Jesus walking among lampstands and the lampstands there were said specifically to represent the churches, right? He was walking among seven lampstands who are the seven churches. So we already have within Revelation, this marker of when we see a lampstand, we should think church. So I think the fact that these two witnesses are called lampstands clues us in to the fact that he's talking about the church here. We're told that the witnesses are persecuted by the beast in verse 7. If you were to fast forward a couple of chapters to chapter 13, verse 7, you would see the beast again persecuting someone, and the people being persecuted by the beast there are all the saints. It's the whole church that are persecuted by the beast. uh, And also that... That persecution by a beast from the pit is predicted in Daniel chapter 7, verse 21. The death and resurrection, the defeat and victory of the witnesses is seen by the nations, right? It says that their enemies watched them as they rose and as they ascended on a cloud. And that suggests a worldwide sort of experience, not just two random people in Jerusalem, literally. So I think the fact that this is a a plainly visible and global happening shows us that we're talking about a bigger reality than just two people in one place. And finally, the period of the witnesses' ministry, the period of time that the witnesses are on the earth uh, carrying out their prophetic ministry, is the same period of time as when the people of God are protected yet persecuted in verse 1. Remember it said... That the nations, the court of the temple would be given over to the nations who would trample the holy city for forty-two months. That's three and a half years. And then we're told that the the uh, witnesses are given authority and they will prophesy for one thousand two hundred sixty days, which is three and a half years. So I think the period of time that the witnesses are prophesying being the same period of time that the The people of God are sealed off and measured off for protection in verse 1 indicates to us that the ministry of the witnesses is the same period of time as the protection of the church. And therefore, I think they're actually one and the same. So the two witnesses here, as, as we'll walk through the rest of this chapter, that's how I'm approaching these witnesses. They are a symbolic picture of the church of Jesus Christ on the earth in this age. There's other cool imagery here that draws heavily from the Old Testament, where it says in verse 4 that these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. This comes directly from Zechariah chapters 3 and 4. The lampstands and olive trees spoken of there are Joshua, who was the priest, and Zerubbabel, who was the king. And they are said to be, quote, the anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. So we have olive tree, lampstand, and anointing of the one who is the priest and the one who is the king. And so in the witnesses in Revelation 11, we see a picture of the church of Jesus Christ in the priestly and kingly roles that Christ has given them to play on the earth. You see, the church represents God to mankind in a priestly way. We, we, we tell the message of God to the world and we, we bring the truth of God and, and we display as it were the person of God and, and the gospel in the life that we live together and the message that we share. And indeed we have the, the royal role, the kingly role of announcing the kingdom of Christ and inviting people to come into it, to submit themselves to the authority of this king and to live as citizens of this Kingdom, And so Joshua and Zerubbabel, priests and king, olive trees and lampstands, show us yet again that the, the church is playing this priest and king role on behalf of Jesus in the world. The significance of the olive trees connected to the lampstands is that it would have been oil from olives that fueled the lamps. So the lamps would burn and give off light as they were filled with olive oil to keep the lamps burning. And it uses in Zechariah 4 the language of anointing. They are the anointed ones standing before the presence of God. And so, the oil that keeps the lamps burning represents the Holy Spirit empowering the people of God for carrying out their priestly and kingly roles in the world. That's a lot. I know that that's a a lot of stuff. Uh, but it's, a, it's, it's all steeped in this Old Testament imagery and language and pictures trying to show us as the people of God, as those who have trusted in Jesus Christ and are now his church, his people on the earth, we have been empowered by the Holy Spirit and entrusted with the mission and message of proclaiming the kingdom of Christ and inviting people into That kingdom. The church is God's priest king in the world, dependent on the Spirit of God to empower their work on the earth. But the Old Testament imagery isn't done yet. The witnesses are given authority to issue divine judgments. So we see, as he describes the the ministry of these two prophets, these two witnesses, if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. Whoa! These people can consume people at will with fire from their mouths? It's said that they're given authority uh, to shut the sky so that rain doesn't fall and to uh, harm the to turn the sea to, to blood and to harm the earth with every kind of plagues as often as they desire. So you might be thinking, okay, so if these witnesses represent the church, what in the world does all of that mean? Does that mean we should be summoning fire from heaven and be able to stop rain and, and inflict plagues upon the earth? I don't think so. I think, again, the Old Testament images that come to mind here are intended to convey the, the essence and the character of the church's prophetic ministry. So the images there of, uh, of stopping the sky so that it doesn't rain calls Uh, to mind the prophet Elijah. And the turning of water to blood and the striking of the earth with plagues calls to mind Moses and the story of the Exodus from Egypt. And so we have in our minds now Elijah and Moses, not because each of us, as we go out into the world to do our various ministries, are going to be doing the same crazy things that Elijah and Moses were doing, but because we represent the same God, the same truth. We have in the content of our message the same sort of pronouncement of, indeed, judgment upon the world. We talked a bit last week about how the, the announcement of the gospel has to start with and include bad news. The bad news that we are sinners, we are under the wrath of God, and we need to, people need to repent in order to escape the wrath that's to come. When it says that fire would come from their mouths and consume those who would seek, to harm them, that is directly from Jeremiah 5.14. Jeremiah 5.14 says, this is God speaking to the prophet, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people wood, and the fire shall consume them. Again, it's language pulled directly from an Old Testament prophet and so the, I, the, the sense that we get is that the fire that comes from the mouths of the witnesses, is not literal fire. It's the message of divine judgment upon sinners. It's the message that says, if you don't repent, judgment is coming. The fire that consumes is the words of the prophet. And the words of the prophet are the Lord's words. And so all of these images and language show us that the the role of the church, as the people of God on earth, is to continue this prophetic ministry. And it's an unpopular ministry, isn't it? And you can see why. It's unpopular because we're telling the world, essentially, there's a holy God. You have sinned against him and are under his wrath. And there is judgment coming. But you can escape his wrath if you'll place your trust in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, because he (laughs) paid the penalty for your sins and rose from the dead. That's the message that the church has been given to proclaim. And we know it's unpopular because in this context, there are people who want to harm the prophets, right? Anyone who would want to harm them, fire comes out from their mouths. Well, why would they want to harm them? Probably because what they're saying is bugging them, right? They are really bothered by the message of the church. All this constant talk about sin and judgment and wrath. You people are so negative. You people are so judgmental. Ever heard anybody say something like that about Christians? Well, we hope to not be judgmental by nature or by demeanor, but the content of the gospel includes the promise of coming judgment. It must. It includes that. And that is an unpopular word. It not only seems to people in our culture, and our world, it not only seems like outdated and kind of old-fashioned, a little outlandish even, but it offends them because it implies there's something wrong with me. Right? That, the message of the gospel includes there's something wrong with you that you can't fix. You see, people today think that the problems they face in this life are chiefly imposed on them by others and that the solution to these problems is to be found within themselves through self-discovery, self-definition, self-expression. And that's the religion of our culture. I find out who I am, I decide who I am, and then I live out who I am, and thereby I am saved from the pressures of society to conform to some other standard. That's the gospel of the sort of post post postmodern whatever you call the age that we're in right now. That's it. Throw off the shackles of restraints and standards of anybody else and be who you are. It's Elsa from Frozen. Let it go. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. That's the gospel of this age. It's not the gospel of Jesus. The gospel says, rather, that the greatest problem you have is within you, namely a sinful heart. And the solution to your problem can only be found outside yourself by looking to Jesus Christ. The gospel is the exact reverse of the salvation that people in our day think that they need. So when you tell somebody you're a sinner and you need to repent, it cuts against every instinct of self-defining and self-expression that they have. So the message of the church is unpopular. The ministry of the church is against the grain of culture. It always is. Though the particulars of the cultural sort of ideology and language and values changes over time, the church always cuts against it. Christ has given his church a task, daunting in some ways, both in its scope, that it's to all the nations, and its anticipated response, because we know we're going to be hated and persecuted for it. But he has also authorized us to speak On his behalf. He's given us us his spirit. Like the oil that fueled the burning lampstands in the temple. The spirit of God blazes in our hearts. Empowering us for work and witness. To announce the coming kingdom of Christ. And to invite others into it. Friends, let's lean on his strength. And stay busy with the work he's given us to do. The church's unpopular ministry. Next, in verses 7-10, through we see the church's apparent defeat. The church's apparent defeat. Verses 7-10 and tell the story of the beast rising up and killing these witnesses, and they lie in the streets dead, and nobody will bury them, because they hate them, and they intend to dishonor them. Indeed, they make merry over their death. I want you to notice one thing before their death. Verse 7 says, When they had finished their testimony... The beast rises from the bottomless pit, will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. The testimony doesn't stop because the beast rose from the pit and killed them. The beast rose from the pit and killed them because their testimony had stopped. There is an appointed time at which the church's ministry on the earth is complete. And God says, you're done. Your work is over. And that's when the beast thinks he gets to win. Right? That's when the beast rises and does his thing. Ha, ha, ha. Check it out. We get to play now. The beast is only able to kill the witnesses because the testimony is complete. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 14, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When will the end come? Not until the church's testimony to all the nations is done. God has this on a timetable that is not accidental. When they have finished their testimony, then refers to the completion of the church's assignment on earth. When the work is done, then the beast has his way for a little bit. Until the witnesses are killed by the beast. More on the beast in chapters 12 through 14, by the way. And the unbelievers in the world celebrate. They have like Christmas in July, man. They're like giving each other presents. Woohoo! The prophets are dead. The church is done. Because the prophets bugged them big time. Right? It says they were a torment to them while they were on the earth. And they rejoice to see them go. Now let me be clear. The death of the witnesses in Revelation is not an indication that the church will literally die. As though all Christ's followers on the earth at some point will be martyred. And it's like, oh, the church is just gone now. That's not going to happen. It's a depiction, rather, of the world's perspective of the church. Right? From the world's perspective, the beast rises up, the powers of state authority and whatnot snuff it out, and it's gone. So it looks like they won. It looks like the church is done for. Especially in seasons of particular oppression and persecution, it may appear to the world... Based on circumstances that the church has been defeated and succumbed to the pressures and opposition that it faced. And the fact that the witnesses' bodies lie in the streets unattended to, which in that culture would have been an extreme insult. An almost unthinkable statement of dishonor and disgrace to allow somebody's body to lie in the street. It simply tells us that, in Tom Schreiner's words, the church of Jesus Christ is scorned, maligned, and dishonored by the world. That is the experience of the people of God in this world. More at certain times and certain places than others. But the scope uh, and the arc of human history shows us that the church is generally maligned and oppressed and marginalized and opposed by the world. (coughs) So the message here is don't don't despair. There may be times when it feels like you're all alone. Even like the prophet Elijah once felt. I alone am left. It may seem, as the world around us drifts farther from any sense of truth or reality as defined by God and His Word, that the church is outnumbered, outmaneuvered, down for the count. But this is all part of God's purposes for His church and the world. You are not alone. The story isn't over. The defeat is not final. And in fact, keep reading, because next we read of the church's public vindication. We saw the church's apparent defeat in verses 7 through 10. And now in verses 11 to 14, we see the church's public vindication. After three and a half days, verse 11, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. Ooh, we thought the church was dead. We thought the church was done for. But looky here, they've risen from the ashes. And indeed, they've ascended to heaven publicly for all to see. Now, I think there's a good chance that this is not depicting a literal ascension of the church to the heavens. But if it is, it sort of casts doubt on the notion that the rapture of the church would be a sort of secret unknown event. Like, hey, where did all the Christians go? Because it's going to be like... Dude, there they are. Just like First Thessalonians 4 says, Jesus comes on the clouds with a loud trumpet sound and all the dead in Christ are raised and meet him in the air, right? That sounds like a pretty public event. And here all the enemies of the church are watching it happen, all right? So if it's depicting a literal rapture, it's a rapture that's very closely connected with the return of Jesus and the final judgment and the ushering into the eternal state of things. Just a note on sort of end times sequences. But it may just be a symbolic representation, again, of the fact that though the church appears to be defeated, God in his time and in his way will vindicate them and their enemies will see that they were telling the truth all along, right? That, oh, they really did belong to God. The message they've been proclaiming to them <laughs> really is true. So the witnesses are resurrected, called up to heaven. They ascend on a cloud in the view of their enemies, The beast's defeat of these witnesses was only apparent, for their dead bodies are now infused with new life by the Spirit of God, and they are revived and stand to their feet again. And it says, And great fear fell on those who saw them. Because when the ones whose death you were just celebrating stand up again, fear is a natural response. Oh, snap. What are they going to do now? And John draws here from the vision of Ezekiel 37, the vision that God gave Ezekiel of this valley filled with dry bones. And he told Ezekiel to prophesy to the bones. And so he began to speak the word of God, and the bones stirred and came together, and flesh formed on them. And suddenly there was this living, breathing army of the saints of God that Ezekiel was preaching to. And so clearly we have this imagery of those who were dead and lifeless in the street, and the breath of God comes upon them, and they stand on their feet. They are alive again, made alive by the word of God. The word breathes life to the people of God. It is his breath into spiritually dead souls that brings us the spiritual life now and forever. We depend on his word and his breath for our life. So in, in the context of Revelation 11, this resurrection scene tells us two important things. First, the church during this age will never be truly defeated. There will not be a time in human history when the church is just done. Where it's like, wow, all the Christians are just gone. They all died. Christianity got snuffed out. As much as we hand-wring and worry about There's all the threats to the church, the threats to the gospel, if we don't fight this thing, the church in America could be gone forever. No, it won't. God is not going to allow his church to be actually finally defeated. It may be weakened. It may be pressured. But it's never actually truly defeated. As Paul said, we are pressed but not crushed. Persecuted, not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. The world will try, as it often has in the past, to snuff out the flame of the church. But the more they try, the more they'll find that the flame Kept burning by the Spirit of God, cannot be quenched. It can only spread. Tim Chester expresses this truth well. He says Soviet communism set out to crush the church, but the church outlived it. When missionaries were thrown out of China, many people feared for the future of the church, but the church has prospered and grown rapidly under persecution. Between 1975 and 1978, President Mengistu of Ethiopia implemented what was called the Red Terror. One and a half million people died and church buildings were closed down. When Mengistu fell, no one was sure what would remain of the church. But it emerged that Christians had been meeting in homes. And unseen, the church had not only survived, but grown. This is what happens. This is the way that the persecution of the church by the world not only doesn't snuff out the witness of the church, it actually increases it. It spreads it. We see that happening in the book of Acts as well as the people were scattered and they took the gospel wherever they went. So the first truth we see in the resurrection of these witnesses is that the church in this age will never be truly defeated. And the second thing we see is that Christ's people will one day be gathered to him. Christ's people will one day be gathered to him. The witnesses are seen by their enemies ascending to heaven in a cloud. And so the death of these witnesses in this vision does not depict a literal martyrdom of all the church on the earth. But their resurrection at the call of God and their ascension to heaven to be with Him is certainly the actual literal future that awaits the people of God. We will be gathered to him in heaven the church's enemies will see this public vindication of God's people. Right? There's this indication here that they all saw it. fear fell upon them. And then there's a great earthquake that destroys a tenth of the city and kills 7,000 people. Again, these numbers are generally symbolic of just a lot of people, a fullness of people. A tenth shows us it's not the whole thing. It's not completely, the world's not completely destroyed. It's a portion of it. Now, these are clearly, therefore, only partial judgments, but in the flow of Revelation 11, at the sounding of the seven trumpets, they immediately precede the final trumpet and the final judgment that will fall. In the course of the church's vindication and the judgments that follow, some of the church's enemies will begrudgingly acknowledge the truth of the matter, though I don't think that they were terrified and gave glory to God indicates true repentance and conversion. There are some who think that it does, that there will be an actual sort of influx of people who repent and trust Christ in these last days. I'm not sure that I see that in this text because that they were terrified and gave glory to God seems to indicate not a holy reverential fear of God, but just sheer terror for their own lives and the sort of begrudging acknowledgement that this seems to be real. Right? The, the judgment of power of God seems to be uh, undeniable. Philippians 2 uh, verse 10 tells us that one day every knee will bow to the lordship of Jesus Christ. And there will be some who willingly and joyfully bow, naming him as their king. But there are those who will only bow because the reality of Jesus' kingship is simply undeniable. But it will be too late. I think that's what's in view in these verses. And verse 14 wraps that section up by saying, The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. So let me read for us these last few verses. We're going to do verses 15 through 18, because I think verse 19 actually belongs with the section that follows it. Verses 15 through 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world is has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And in these verses we see depicted the church's final victory. The church's final victory. You see, throughout the age leading up to this point, the church has been pressed and persecuted and opposed, apparently defeated at times. But in the end, the church will be victorious in Christ. So you see as these verses begin, we're we're back in heaven's throne room again, right? So we're back to uh, the thrones of the elders surrounding the throne of God. and, And loud voices start to sing the hallelujah chorus from Handel's Messiah, right? He shall reign forever and ever, right? They are just celebrating, praising God. You have taken your power and begun to reign. You have judged the nations. You have saved your people. Clearly, the seventh trumpet represents the full and final judgment of God upon sinners at the end of history. So what we've just seen and read about is Christ has come, Christ has judged the wicked, and Christ has called his people to himself in heaven, and the eternal state has begun. Look at the song of the elders in verses 17 and 18. It says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Notice, it doesn't say who is and who was and who is to come. That's been the phrase that we've seen a couple of times in Revelation when it gives praise to the one who is and who was and who is to come. Because guess what? By this point, he's come already. (laughs) I don't have to say the one who is to come because he's here. We're with him, right? Who was and who, who is and who was. You have taken your great power and begun to reign. The kingdom is here. The opponents have been silenced and both judgment of the wicked and salvation of the righteous are celebrated right it says the nations raged but your wrath came the time for the dead to be judged the time for the destroying of the destroyers of the earth that's a part of their song might sound a little morbid to us but god's justice being poured out on the idolaters and the immoral and the oppressors of the world is cause for worship it's cause for rejoicing And the rewarding of your servants, prophets and saints, those who fear your name, the small and the great. Friends, this is coming. This day is on the way. History is moving inexorably toward this amazing reality. When the saints go marching in, don't you want to be in their number? Praise God, if you will acknowledge your sinfulness, admit your need for rescue, and name Jesus as Savior and Lord, you'll get to sing hallelujah along with this crazy heavenly choir. What grace. Temporarily persecuted, but ultimately victorious. Can I point out one other place where this pattern plays out almost exactly Think about the journey of the church we've seen in Revelation chapter 11 and see if it rings any bells, if it sounds familiar. There's the proclamation of the kingdom with powerful signs. That results in satanic opposition and persecution and a violent death in Jerusalem. The world looks on their victim with a perverse joy. And then there's a resurrection. And a public vindication by ascending into heaven on a cloud. Does this sound familiar to you? The path that Jesus is calling us to walk, the path of suffering that leads to glory, the path of victory through persecution, is the path that he himself walked before us. And just as surely as he stands in heaven now, in the presence of God and his angels so surely will we one day follow him there. We're trusting in him. Let's pray.